transition into our scripture reading as well as our message for this morning. Our scripture reading this morning, it comes from Matthew chapter 28 verses, or sorry, Matthew 18 verses 21 to 35. And the sermon title for this morning is Forgivers Must Also Be Forgiven. Again, that's Matthew chapter 18 verses 21 to 35. And the title is Forgivers Must Also Be Forgiven. And so if you've all found your places, this is God's holy and inerrant word, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to him, came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began choke, to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. of the person in front of us, that we are required to bend ourselves around what they need. Sometimes that's because of another person's immaturity, sometimes that's because of their failings, their weaknesses, because of their sin. This week I want to lean into that a little bit more, because the more that you think about it, the more you realize that literally all of your relationships are with people who sin with people who on a pretty consistent basis are not the best that they could be, people who don't always do what's beneficial, but people who do things that are harmful, harmful to themselves and harmful to the people around them. In other words, in a broken world, you only ever engage broken people, people who sin, people who sin often, and if you're in relationship, people who will often sin against you. That experience will wear you out. 
Recently, I was talking with a woman who's struggling in her marriage. Her husband, like all husbands, sins against her, but the way that he does so is, hurts her uh, pretty badly. She used an analogy to communicate what that's like for her. She said, I shouldn't have to deal with this. It's like touching a hot stove and getting burned and then thinking, wait, now what? I'm just supposed to go back and, and try to relate again? I'm supposed to go and touch the stove again knowing that I'm going to be burned? That doesn't make any sense. And I listened to that and I thought, that is such a powerful metaphor. It's a metaphor that doesn't go simply to their dynamic. It goes to the heart of the tragedy of human relationships. We crave deep, close, personal, intimate contact with each other. It's what we were made for. We need that. We want that. And yet, after evil enters into this world, people are broken. When you put anything at the center of the world other than God, one of the first things that does is burn your relationships. That's the argument out of Romans chapter 1. If you replace the Creator with anything in the creation, if you value something more than you value Him, if you bend all your effort to have something other than to have Him, every one of your relationships will take a hit. You can't orient your life around something other than God. You can't downgrade Him, can't push Him to the edges, and expect that that will have no impact on how you engage an image of God. Instead, demote the original, and you will debase the image. You can't avoid it. You'll end up treating the image badly because you have devalued the original, which then devalues the way that you think about human beings. And so we're left with this conundrum. We long for intimate relationships with people who end up hurting us if we get too close to them for too long. Now, the severity of the hurt is different from person to person, from relationship to relationship. Some hurt is far, far worse than others. The severity of the hurt is different. But the fact and the regular experience of being hurt is not. Relate to someone long enough and they will hurt you. And they will do so in the same ways over and over again. And then you have to deal with my friend's question. Why would I want to risk touching a hot stove again? That's the question Peter is working through in verse 21. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now think about what Peter's trying to do here. He's limiting his exposure to what? To getting burned. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? What is the maximum number of times, Jesus, that I have to open myself up to being hurt by my brother? I know I have to forgive, but Lord, I don't, I don't want to be foolish here. So Lord, how often? As many as seven times? What's he doing? He's drawing a boundary, isn't he? Between himself and another person in order to what? To guard himself. To protect himself to protect himself from someone who has a history of hurting him and he thinks that seven is pretty generous which if you think about it, and you think about the details you realize yeah actually it is wives let's say that you're looking forward to a special time with your husband you're planning to go out for dinner you're really looking forward to this Things have been crazy lately you haven't had an awful lot of time to catch up and so you've been thinking about this 
special time for several days now. Today you carve out extra time to get ready, take a little bit more care in how you look, and you're, all and you're on time. You are all set and ready, and he's not. He's not home yet. Now being a charitable person, you don't mind him being a little late. You actually were able to use the extra time to do the finishing touches. But after 15 minutes, you start to wonder, where is he? After 25 minutes, you're getting a little irritated. And if you've done this before, you know that your irritation grows, what, every five minutes until he's about 50 minutes late, and then it flips. The irritation morphs into anxiety. You've been calling, his phone keeps rolling over to voicemail, and you start to worry. Well, gee, maybe, maybe, maybe he got into an accident. He didn't. Finally, he rolls in, to the, in the door about 65 minutes late, and he says, oh, I I'm sorry. I just really wanted to finish that project at work that I was doing at the office I should have called, but I was catching up with one of my buddies on the way home. Please forgive me. And you do. Then next week, he does the same thing. This time you're a little quicker to notice, you're a little less lenient about what time it is, and you're also more worried because surely, after last week, something really bad must have happened for him to be late this week. But again, it's nothing serious. He went out with friends after work, just lost track of time, no big deal, just simply took you for granted again. When he asks you to forgive him this time, it's a little harder to make yourself want to do that. After all, he knows how to use a cell when he wants to. But you get to a place where you do forgive him, you go on. Several weeks later, he does it again. He doesn't have a good reason, again, and he asks you to forgive him, again. This time it's even harder to forgive, and we're only up to three times. Fourth time he does this, you explode. You say, no! I don't want to forgive you. You're not taking this seriously. You're not taking me seriously. Nobody can be that clueless. He asks you to believe that, yes, some people really are. And so it goes. Now, we're only up to four for something in the grand scheme of things is really not that big a deal. We're not talking about him lying to you, cheating on you, stealing from you, slandering you. You start to get a sense here of where Peter's coming from. Forgiving someone seven times is a really big deal. It's hard work. It's much easier to be bitter, avoid the other person, try to protect yourself from being hurt by them. So part of what Peter is trying to do here is tr to find a way to protect himself, but he's doing it by basing it on his own self-assessment of being a pretty decent guy. Okay, you all know this. We only offer to excuse in others what we think is reasonable to be excused from ourselves. So if you have some issues with showing up late, don't you tend to excuse that in other people? If you regularly run 10, 15 minutes behind schedule, it's no big deal if someone shows up at your house for dinner 10 minutes late, right? In your mind, they're not late, they're on time, because that's the same thing that you would do. And so you excuse in others 
what you already excuse in yourself. But if someone is 65 minutes late, that starts to be something you have to work to excuse, especially if it trashes your dinner reservations. Or think about it differently. If someone is always 10 minutes early everywhere they go, they tend to not give a whole lot of room to someone who's 10 minutes late consistently. They don't excuse 10 minutes late in others. Why? Because they don't need to be excused from it themselves. So when Peter proposes that perhaps he should extend himself to someone seven times, what is he saying? He's saying that he cannot imagine a world in which he'd ever have to be forgiven eight times. That seven is enough to extend to others because he would never need more than seven himself. In other words, not only is he working to protect himself from others, but he's doing so from within a certain perspective that says, I'm a pretty reasonable guy. I'm one who doesn't need a great deal of forgiveness, and so he's not interested in relating to people who need more. He actually wants to protect himself from those kind of people. Do you see what he's doing here? He's not working from within a grace-oriented worldview where you extend yourself to someone on the basis of what they need. Instead, he's working from within a works-oriented worldview where you do what you have to do. You do what's required of you, and then what? And then you're done. And so you are counting in your relationships. Okay, that was the fifth forgiveness, sixth forgiveness, seventh. Oh, now we're done. I've done what I was supposed to do. You've gone over your limit. You don't deserve anymore. I've now done everything that I had to do. And he's teaching you here that there are only two ways of relating to people, broken people in a broken world. Either I tap into some unlimited resource that lets me keep giving and giving what you need so that I move away from myself and I move toward you, or I limit my interactions with you what you've earned because I think that what that that's a better life for me and so Peter is taking wonderful words the wonderful gift of forgiveness and he's detaching it from the life-giving grace from which forgiveness springs and he is now weaponizing it in a very cold religious system now Put yourself in Jesus' position. He's relating to someone, Peter, who is oriented inwardly, not thinking about how he can meet the needs of the people around him, not thinking about how he can set someone free from the guilt that comes with having sinned against Peter. Peter's not thinking about that other person. He's thinking about how to protect himself from that person fixated on his own goodness, and Jesus now has to figure out, man, <laughs> How do I redirect this guy outwardly? How do I do that in a way that is for the sake of the other person without increasing Peter's sense of self-righteousness? And so Jesus can't say to Peter, oh, I know, forgiveness, man, it's exhausting. But listen, this is what it means to be a good person. Good people forgive. 
It's what I do, and since you're my disciple now and you're following me, I'm your example. Now you have to do what I do, follow my example, so just, you know, man up, suck it up, stop whining, and just do it. If Jesus says anything that sounds remotely like that, what will that do? That, that, that will make Peter feel that much more resentful toward other people. And at the same time, he'll feel more superior to them. He'll come off in his own mind as an even better person, which means he'll really be condescending and arrogant, which will not be forgiveness. And so Jesus has to figure out how to motivate someone to love others who's currently fixated on loving himself. Now let me take just a brief aside here to make sure that we're clear on what Jesus is not addressing. Peter's talking here about my brother. He's not talking about an enemy. He's not talking about someone who fakes being your friend, but who's really just doing that to use you, to get what they can out of you, to abuse you. He's not talking here about a predator. Jesus in the New Testament addressed those kinds of things in other places by talking about wolves among the sheep. Wolves who might even dress up to look like sheep, but who really are only there for what they can get out of them for themselves. Peter's not talking about that kind of scenario here. He's talking about someone who is committed to you and to your best interests, and yet someone who in the course of life sins against you, then wishes they hadn't, and then wants to be forgiven. And so what is Jesus not addressing here? He is not addressing abuse. He's not addressing how a victim of abuse should engage with their abuser. And he's also not talking here about restoration. Scripture has lots to say about what it looks like to restore a relationship that's been damaged by sin. It talks a lot about how to go about building trust when trust has been broken. It talks about restitution. It talks about recovery. None of that is in view here. Jesus is simply addressing the willingness to be on the road to restoration. He's addressing how do you find the desire to forgive one more time when you don't want to. And so to do that, Jesus tells a parable. He tells a parable about a guy who both owed something to someone, he owed something to the king, and who was owed something by someone else, by a fellow servant. Now, in my experience, we often miss the weight of this parable normally when we preach it, when we teach it. We normally make it sound like one guy owes millions of dollars and the other guy a couple bucks, ten, twenty dollars. And so we often make it sound like, oh, just stop whining about how to forgive someone. It's really not that big a deal. It's more helpful for us to drop into the world of the parable. So think with me here. How much is one denarius? The one guy, verse 28, owes another 100 denarii. So how much is one denarius worth? If you take Jesus seriously in another parable, Matthew chapter 20, Grown men are willing to work all day, from sunrise to sunset, in the hot sun, picking grapes, in order to earn a single denarius. And they think that's a pretty good deal. In other words, one denarius is equal to what you would get paid for a hard day's labor for an average worker. 
So when Jesus talks about one guy owing 100 denarii, he's talking about 100 days' worth of wages that are owed. Let's make this a little more clear. If you take a year, 365 days, you subtract out Sabbaths, you subtract out holy days, you're going to end up with roughly 300 days that you could possibly work. So 100 denarii is roughly equal to a third of a year's pay. Keep in mind here, he's talking to people who are part of a largely agrarian society, probably not socking away large amounts of cash. They don't have investment portfolios. They don't have substantial emergency funds. They're living hand to mouth day to day. Now, what would happen to you and your family if someone took one third of your annual income and you didn't have anything to fall back on? Is that something that you would recover from quickly? Something you wouldn't even notice? <laughs> or would that start to affect you in ways that you could not imagine? Let's make it more pointed. It's always dangerous when you try to talk about what an average person's work is worth. For the sake of the argument, let's pick a number. Let's assume an average annual income of 100,000. I understand that's way low for some of us and it's way high for others. Let's pick 100,000. If you're making 100,000 in a year, Jesus is saying that one person, one servant, owes the other about $33,000. In other words, we're talking about something that's huge. They have done something that you don't get over easily. Something that is so large that without a serious savings account, it would affect the Smith family immediately. Something where I'm wondering, are, are we going to make it? How are we going to pay the mortgage? How do we keep the utilities on? What, what are we going to eat? <laughs> you can forget here about cutting out extras. We're turning off the thermostat. We're changing our diet, selling the cars, probably renting out a spare room. That's the kind of loss that you would have to deal with immediately. But it's also the kind of loss that lingers. It's the loss that you keep struggling with over the months and years afterward. It's the loss that takes you deeper and deeper into bitterness. How frequently do you think you would have a picture of the person flash through your mind who took $33,000 from you? How many nights would you go to bed thinking about them? What would that struggle look like when you had to let go of something special? Something you'd been looking forward to, something for the kids, because the money just was gone. This is not a small thing that the guy in the parable owed 100 denarii to the other person. It was a really big deal. Jesus is talking here about big, big sin. He's talking about one person sinning so much about, against another that you're not going to get over this real quickly at all. We lose the punch of this parable by making it look puny. To Jesus' hearers, he's talking about something that is just enormous. Something that the people you lived with, that if the people you lived with did against you, you would want to choke them. You would want to say, just like the guy in verse 28, pay what you owe. Give it back. You had no right to that. This servant was horribly sinned against. And that's only one side of him. There's this other side. He's owed by a fellow servant, but he also owed the king. 
he was sinned against, he suffered, but he also sinned. And that's always true. Everyone who suffers also sins. And as Jesus goes, to point, goes on to point out, those two things are never equal. We are never owed by other people as much as we owe the Lord. Again, think about the details here. This guy owed the king 10,000 talents. Okay, what's a talent? Each talent is roughly 20 years income. So when you do the math, 10,000 talents times 20 years of income, this is roughly 200,000 years of income. Again, we'll take $100,000 for the sake of comparison as an annual income. We are talking then about owing the king 20 billion dollars. 20 billion dollars worth of debt. It's one of those numbers that, that you really can't wrap your mind around. How do you run up a tab like that where you now owe someone 20 billion dollars? What are you doing? Internet stock trading? You'd be hard-pressed to spend that much money. I know some of you would love to try. But what on earth would you buy? Small country? In order to spend $20 billion? You would have to make spending that much money your full-time job in order to go through that much. So going back to the parable, Jesus, let me get this straight. One guy owes $20 billion. He has somehow managed to ring up a debt of $20 billion worth. He gets forgiven. And then he won't turn around and forgive the guy who owes him $33,000. And you think this is a ridiculous parable. What fool could be so blind to have that amount forgiven and then hold a grudge against someone else? This guy should be absolutely delirious with joy at being released from that $20 billion debt. You should be able to mug him on the street and he wouldn't even notice. His reaction doesn't make any sense. How can someone be set free from that kind of burden, then turn around without even pausing and make someone else's burden heavier? It's not possible, right? Unless we follow each other around and watch what we do. We know that what we've done was serious enough that it caused the death of Christ. We know that the sins we commit stink to heaven. That in the words of John Bunyan, they threaten to sink us lower than the grave. We know the hot wrath, the just anger, the fierce displeasure that God directs against our sin. We know that what we've done rightly deserves the eternal burning punishment of hell. And I'm not talking about the stuff you did before you started following Christ long ago in the past. I'm talking about this morning when we greeted our spouse, our roommates, Someone made in the image of God in ways that were less than what an image of God deserves. I'm talking about the times when we carried on petty fights and bickering with our brothers and sisters in our family, with our brothers and sisters in our church. When we held grudges. When we sneered at another driver on the road or we shook our head condescendingly because of something they did. I'm talking about breaking the peace of our homes over an overflowing trash can, over an unclean car, running out of milk, 
someone taking an extra five minutes in the bathroom. I'm talking about the million ways that we deny Christ each and every day that cost him his life in order to forgive us. And then to add to our guilt, after sinning against our gracious Lord, after having received his forgiveness, we turn around and we refuse to gladly forgive someone else. It's the same thing as the unmerciful servant. You have been forgiven beyond your wildest imagining. <laughs> You've been forgiven an amount so large you can't fathom how big it is. An amount that is staggering, incomprehensible. And yet you refuse to extend a fraction of that mercy to someone else. And in the moment that we demand that someone else pay us back what, we, uh, what they owe us, we are adding to our $20 billion debt because of our hard, stubborn hearts that refuse to forgive, that refuse to treat someone else like he has treated us. And so we play the judge with others. We accuse them, pronounce them guilty, and sentence them in order to make them pay their debt. And if they don't grovel well enough, we raise our voice, we insult them, berate them, list their sins for them one more time, give them the silent treatment, cut them out of our lives altogether until we are satisfied that we've been paid what, we owe, what we're owed. And in setting ourselves up to be the judge, we take over God's right to be the judge. We put ourselves in his place and we say to him, we don't want mercy, we want judgment. And what's shocking is how hard it is to move ourselves, like Peter, from trying to protect ourselves to a place where we want people to be unburdened from the guilt that they carry around. So how do you do that? Is there anything you can do that, that will move your heart to forgive when you don't want to? Just like literally everything else in the Christian life, it comes back to you having to experience the gospel here and now, not years ago. It comes back to you having a personal experience, a personal encounter of the grace of God. If you're going to have any hope of living a gracious, grace-based life with anyone else, you have to experience that grace yourself. You have to experience it, and you have to know that you experienced it. How do you do that? Start by considering how great your debt has been. Meditate on what it means to have a $20 billion debt that you owe to God. Think about what that looks like. Think about what that feels like. Spend some time realizing that in God's eyes, that's the size that we're talking about. And when you get to the place where you realize, I can't, I can't grasp that, I don't know what to do with that, then pray. And pray for eyes to see a little more clearly like he does. Now this is really important. We're talking about spiritual realities here. We're talking about the very real presence of spiritual blindness that blinds you to a $20 billion debt. You cannot talk yourself out of that blindness. There is no mental exercise to break through that. But there is a God who loves you, who will break through that for you, who will help you to see 
the extent of what you have owed. Pray to see that. But don't stop there. After you get a sense of what you have owed to God, meditate on the love and the kindness that God has for you that he would cancel that kind of debt. Realize that in your relationship with God that what? You are the hot stove. You're a really hot stove. A stove that Jesus insists on getting next to and insists on touching. But he doesn't touch you and then pull away from you. Instead, he wraps you in his arms and burns himself so badly that in heaven you can still see the scars. That's what he showed his disciples when he rose from the dead, the scars in his hands and side from the cross, where he hung to pay for every single time that you refused to love someone, for every single time when you refused to forgive them for failing to love you. Who is it that willingly touches hot stoves? It's Jesus. More. He unites you with himself, puts his spirit in you so that he can never be separated from you, never stop touching you. And he does that to rescue you, to draw all the heat and all of the ugliness and all of the evil out of you so that you'll no longer be someone who's dangerous to yourself or to the people around you. Meditate on that picture. Let yourself be amazed again by the love that Christ has for you. And then allow your amazement to turn to worship. Spend time thanking him for freeing you from yourself. And in doing that, what? You will be transformed. Why? Because you become what you worship. Worship a God who never lets anyone take advantage of him, who keeps careful account of all debts, Make sure that all debts are paid back in full with interest. Worship that kind of God, and you will hold others to what they owe you. You will insist that they'll pay back to you what they owe you, and you'll be a person who ends up being bitter, angry, cold, resentful. You'll be miserable to live with. You'll suck all the joy out of life. But worship a God who is so great that he has the capacity to forgive $20 billion debts. A God of all grace who is not impoverished by canceling that debt. A God who freely forgives from his heart. Worship him, and you'll become like him. A person who longs to give grace. Who has compassion on others. Who is slow to anger, who abounds in love. Who delights to give to others what you yourself have received. Worship him and you will enjoy setting people free from their debts in exactly the same way that he set you free from yours. What's that look like practically? The next time someone sins against you and you don't want to forgive them, ask them if you can take a five-minute break. Ask them if you can go away and wrestle with God for a few moments. Because in that moment that you don't want to forgive someone from your heart, what are you doing? You're sinning against God. You're adding to your $20 billion debt in that moment. 
treating his mercy with contempt all over again. And what does that mean? It means you need his forgiveness when? Not in the past. You need his forgiveness right now, which is a perfect way for you to what? To experience the gospel, to receive the grace that you then need to give to the other person. Remember one morning when Sally and I started our day off wrong. Literally within minutes of waking up, I was upset because of something she did. It's one of those where I can't even remember the details anymore, but I know I was mad. I hate times like that, where there's that friction between the two of us. Sally hates that too. She came looking for me, found me, and we talked, if you can call it talking. I was not at all loving. Instead, I let her know in no uncertain terms how unhappy I was, and to make matters worse, worse, she didn't engage me in that moment. She went off to pray, get things right with God. I also went off my office to enjoy being mad. Do you know what that's like? Stalked into my office, sat there mulling over all the things that she had done wrong, wrapping myself in self-pity, enjoying the delicious feeling of having been wronged. But thankfully, I'm not alone there in my office, but there's also the Spirit of God who will not let go of me. And he starts to convict me that as bad as anything that Sally might have done, what I'm doing right now is far worse. It dwarfs anything that she may have done because I'm refusing to give her the grace that I've been given. Jesus says, verse 35, that God's expectation is that after having forgiven us, that we would freely, gladly forgive each other from the heart. That we would take the experience that we have had and offer that to each other. That means if you're not willing to forgive, then you've either never been forgiven. You might come to church, you might be religious, you might even be a pretty good person, like Peter. But if you're not willing to forgive, then you've either never been forgiven or you've forgotten how much you needed to be. That was where I was that morning. And so I started to talk to God and confess to him that I didn't want to forgive her. That's where I was. I have to be honest about that with God. I didn't want to forgive, and I understood, Lord, that that means I'm in trouble, that I'm now in danger of hardening my heart, danger of feeling self-righteous, of turning bitter inside as I remember all of her failings and rehearse all of my goodness. And so I cried out to God to rescue me, not from her, to rescue me from me, to soften me so that I would love my wife. Most amazing thing happened. I didn't feel a thing. No tingles, no warm, gushy thoughts of love. No renewed longing for intimate closeness, but there was a greater resolve that happened, a greater resolve to forgive. I felt deep inside, this is a good thing. This is an attractive thing. And I had a sense inside that I now had enough energy so that I could forgive freely, openly, from the heart, one more time. Not for the next coming decades, but one more time, which is what I needed at that moment. Sally and I did reconcile. It ended up being a very tender moment. But without God's kindness to humble me, 
to make me realize how much danger I was in. Without his forgiveness, without his grace to do what I had no interest in doing, I would have taken that wonderful opportunity to show grace and I've thrown it away. We sat there together and I started to think as I'm holding her, you know, by God's grace, if he's kind, and we both lived that long, we're probably going to have this argument for another 40 years. And in that moment, I thought, that's a good thing. First time I ever thought anything like that. That's a good thing. I didn't cringe. I didn't start trying to figure out how do I change things? How do I get her to be different? Instead, I thought, I have another 40 years to experience the grace of God in my life to soften me so that I'm a little bit closer to where Jesus already is. 40 more years, if he allows, of pressing into him more deeply so that I can relate to my family a little bit more like he relates to me. Those are exactly the same gifts that he offers you. The chance to experience him again and again and again and again and again and again as he changes you into someone who longs to forgive as much as the people around you need to be forgiven. Lord Jesus, you did not come to simply usher us into heaven. You came to change us into people who would fit into heaven. You didn't come so that at some point in the future we would be like you. But you came to change us now so that we could experience that in the present where people need that from us. Lord, I pray for the hardness that is still in my heart. Lord, soften me. I pray for my friends this morning. Lord, soften all of us. I pray for those, Lord, who have not experienced your grace yet, that it would be incredibly attractive to them and that they would want that from you. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us that sense of having met with you now, that as we praise you, it would come freely from our hearts, that sense of having been forgiven, of having received grace from you and then praising you now like we will for all eternity. And I ask this in Jesus' name.